we, we focus on on our grip. We focus on what it is that we are doing, right? Am, am I serious? Am I devoted? Am I committed? Am I willing to sacrifice? Like all, all the attention is, is placed on us. And instead of focusing on the branch, we're, we're, we're staring in the mirror, right? Trying to find life. And that leads to a life of anxiety. That leads to a life of uncertainty. That leads to a, a life of, of anything but peace and joy, right? If, if we're constantly focused on, am I doing enough to please God, to earn his favor, then I'm not focused on Christ and I, and I have no fuel in me. I have nothing in me in order to live the Christian life and have assurance that I am right in his eyes, right? And so we, we, we get this backwards. I think we're, we're predisposed and pre-wired to think that way. And I believe that's true because every other religion except for Christianity is focused on the grip. Christianity alone is focused on the branch, right? And so we want to, we want to cast our eyes on the branch. And we want to put our focus and our attention there. Sorry, here. <clears throat> All of our hope and all of our trust and all of our rest lies in this person of Jesus Christ. And, and it, it, it seems counterintuitive. It's like, certainly there's something I must do. Like it, it, it doesn't seem right to us internally to think that there, there's, there's nothing on our part, right? Like if there's a canyon between us and God, we know that Jesus is the bridge, but I've got to take a couple steps at least, right? There's something in me. There's something that my heart and in my pride says, Okay, I, I've got to at least something, right? But what does the Bible tell us? All we must do is call out for help, call out for mercy, right? Jesus has accomplished it all. If there's any part of it, depending upon us, we're in trouble. And so our life and our faith and our assurance and our rest and our peace and our joy all rests on this person, Jesus Christ. And so that being the case, the two questions we must ask is, Number one is, is Jesus able to save? Is he actually qualified to save? If we're going to put all our eggs, if we're going to bet the farm on Jesus, is he capable of carrying that weight? And secondly, is he willing? Because if he's not able or capable, we're in trouble. And if he's capable and able but not willing, we're in trouble. So who is this Jesus Christ? That is, that is the cornerstone of our faith. And that is what everything depends upon. Who is Jesus Christ? What is our definition of Jesus? And this has been a question from the day he showed up on earth. We're studying the book of John down in Mexico, and we get three main categories in the book of John, and it's all based on who is Jesus. The religious leaders, like, we don't care who he is. We just want him dead, right? The crowds are generally confused by him. They appreciate his miracles. They appreciate the food that he provides. They appreciate the healing that he offers but they're generally just pretty fickle and floppy and kind of go back and forth on whether they love him or hate him. And it's really only the disciples that cling to him for life. And then from the disciples, they become the apostles and the churches were. But the main question is who, who is this Jesus and, and is he trustworthy and is he willing to save? And this is exactly what Paul is addressing with these verses. The church had been birthed in Colossus. And then some false teachers came in and they said, yeah, Jesus, but there's a couple things you need to do. 
right? Jesus isn't quite elevated high enough. Uh, he's one of the angels, or a bunch of angels got together, and, you, and you've got to worship these angels along with Jesus. There's some, some really committed um, sacrificial things you need to do to prove to Jesus that uh, you're worthy of being saved. Like they, they were just confusing. They weren't against Jesus. They weren't saying, forget Jesus. They're saying, yeah, Jesus, but he needs a little help because he's really not sufficient to save. And so Paul immediately writes this letter to address this issue. And you can see in the introduction, and, and I was here a few months ago and we covered that, Paul is really an attorney in a great drama, courtroom drama. And in his opening statement, in his introduction, he's just, he's just pointing all the arrows at Christ. He's like, forget about all this nonsense. I want you to know who Christ is. And so he's working through that in chapter one. And then these verses 15 through 20, it's almost an interrupt. He almost interrupts himself because there's a train of thought in 13 and 14 that picks back up in verse 21. And these 15 through 20 is almost just parentheses. And many people who've studied it have called it a poem or a hymn because of the way it's laid out. If you're going to write a song, you, you would follow Paul's pattern here. And this will, this will become apparent. So who is this Jesus? Is he able to save us? And is he willing to save us? So let's walk through these verses together. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. Often when I've read this, I think, okay, image. And I kind of just dismissed it. Oh, so Jesus looks like God. But we're not talking about a physical representation because it says right here that God is invisible. So we're not talking about a physical representation of God. We are talking about a representation of who God is, his moral character, his holiness, his perfection, his power, his love, his compassion, his purpose, his will. Jesus, you want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know God's will for your life? Look at Jesus. Do you want to know how to live in this world until we get to glory? Look at Jesus. Jesus is the exact representation of God. In Christ, the invisible God has become visible. The significance of this is astounding to me. I do a reading plan and I read through the Old Testament. And it's amazing how the Old Testament is just story after story, chapter after chapter, book after book of humanity, us, attempting, kind of trying. But most of the time, we're just rebelling against God, right? We're just coming up short. And what does God do? There's always a but God. God. God is always holding on to a remnant for himself. It is very clear that God's desire is to save a people for himself. And it is his desire to do it. And it's not our desire because we just fumble it as soon as we get a hold of it. And so generation after generation, millennia after millennia, you get this history of man just rebelling against God. And so what does God do? He chooses to reveal himself by coming to earth in human form. Like he just, he just won't give up. You and I would have given up long ago. But our loving father has not given up. And so he, he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And just the, the why behind he, the reason that he did that is astounding. It's astonishing. He came to earth so that 
we might be reconciled to him. So he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. This particular sentence gets a lot of people in trouble. When we think firstborn, we think that Jesus was then born. But there's several reasons why we know that that's not true. When we keep reading the following verses, in verse 16, the very next verse, for by him all things were created, meaning Christ. If Christ created all things, he couldn't create himself. He was already created. So he's not saying that he was the first thing born. It's not a matter of order. It's a matter of rank. What, what the Bible says when it means firstborn often is it's speaking of a position of authority. Back in Psalms, I believe it's Psalms 89. God says that he's going to make David his firstborn king. Well, David wasn't the first king, and he wasn't the firstborn of his brothers. So we're not speaking of time, we're speaking of rank. And so what God is saying, what Paul is saying of Jesus, is that there is none higher than Jesus Christ. He is supreme and he is preeminent. And this is really Paul's argument. He's just going to keep repeating this all through these verses. Christ is supreme and he is preeminent. These false teachers were saying that, that Jesus was on the same ground as the angels. And Paul is refuting that right here. And he's just throwing punches and saying, no, he, he's above all the angels. He's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, for by him, your version might say in him, or by him or in him, all things were created. The key to this verse is, is the three prepositions. In him, through him, and for him. Christ has created all things. There's nothing outside of Christ that exists. All creation took place through him, and none of creation took place without him. Every created thing owes its existence to Jesus Christ. So if we look at the created by him, through him, and for him. We get this picture of the reason we're here, right? We were created by Christ for Christ. And most of us are okay with the, with the we were created by Christ. But the idea that we were created for Christ takes a little bit of work, right? Like, wait, wait a minute, I, I have goals and I have plans and I have desires and I have things that I want to be doing. But we were created by Christ for Christ. We exist for Christ's glory. Created by Christ and for Christ, and he has authority over all. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a summary statement that Paul is making of verses 15 and 16. Jesus did not create the world and then leave it to run itself. He is right now at the right hand of God, sustaining and maintaining us. Not only is he interceding for us, but it's through him and by him that, that we're able to be alive right now. We're alive and we came to church because Jesus decided that he wanted us to be alive and come to church. Everything is about him. Everything is provided for him. So these three, first three verses, 15, 16, and 17, 
the point Paul is making is that Jesus Christ is God. He is the all-powerful creator. He is the all-powerful sustainer. And so is Christ qualified to save a people for himself? Well, he is the preeminent Christ. He is supreme above all other created things. He himself created all things. So he's absolutely 100% more than sufficient to save a people for himself. He is mighty to save. He is more than powerful and capable to save. And Paul is refuting these false teachers that were, that were sowing seeds of doubt and confusion and discord into the church, which was robbing the church's peace. It was robbing communion between one another within the church. It was causing relational frictions. And then it was causing a, a discord and distortion of the witness to the watching world. You start to get a confusing picture of Jesus Christ and everything falls apart. Our peace and joy and love go away. Our assurance goes away. Our confidence to walk in love, knowing that we are among the perishing that God's love is for. All that goes away. When all that goes away, everything falls apart. I start to look horizontally. I start to fight, right? And then, then the world sees us and it's like, yeah, it doesn't look like much fun. I don't think I want to do that. Everything centers on our, our definition of who Jesus Christ is. And Paul knows this. And that's why Paul is writing to the Colossians the way he is. And this is why the Holy Spirit of God has, has given us this text 2,000 years later. So verses 15 through 17, Jesus Christ is God, and he is capable and able and qualified to save. He switches gears in verse 18. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. If you remember in verse 15, he's the firstborn of creation, and now in verse 18, he's also the firstborn of the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I believe the ESV reads that he will have preeminence in everything. So we see that Christ was the beginning and the creator of all things. And now he is the creator of the church. If the king of the universe, who is all powerful and who needs nothing and has the power to create everything. If his main objective for coming to earth is to create the church. How big of a deal is the church to him? Convicting for me, right? It, it is his bride. It is his very reason for coming here. It is his very reason for going to the cross. There, there's nothing more significant to him than this church, than his people. His blood on the cross is what has made the uh, what has made possible the new creation, his perfect life, his sacrificial death, him conquering death by his resurrection, his ascending to the right hand of the Father where he currently reigns. We're getting a clear picture that Christ is very willing to save. He has created, established, maintains, and grows the church. He tells us, I believe it's in John, I will build my church. This Christ who reigns and rules supreme above all else now gives himself to create the church. Everything in the church rests on Christ. Verse 19, all the fullness to dwell in him. 
father and the son are one there i might have mentioned this before but th there's a, a big movement i guess it's probably been around forever that that talks about the atonement meaning god the father and god the son and the son goes to the cross they're calling that divine child abuse cosmic child abuse like like somehow um jesus was trying to manipulate the father and appease him by going to the cross and and it's just a really twisted up but, but when they talk about it, it it doesn't sound as twisted up as i'm making it sound right now they're like well that's not a very loving father is it what loving father would send his only son to the cross that doesn't sound like love and so it just it gets really confusing. There's a little bit of truth in what they're saying, and there's a lot of distortion in what they're saying. But we can see here that the Father and the Son are one. There's no separation. There's no manipulation. That, that's a ridiculous notion. The Father and the Son and the Spirit all operate in unison. All the fullness. To dwell in him. That word dwell is a big word in the scriptures. Remember when David wanted to build a place for God's presence to dwell? And God said, no, wait, I'm going to have your son do that. And then the temple was created and it had different areas and different sections where certain people could go in this section. And then uh, if you were a little bit, uh, if you were... I believe anointed as priest, you could go in the next section, but then there was only one priest of the priest that could go into the Holy of Holies because that's where God's presence resided. And then when Christ died on the cross, that protection of that Holy of Holies, that curtain was torn in two, meaning that access to all who believe in Christ was given. And so we see that again here. The presence of God dwells in Jesus Christ. And so when we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, the presence of God is inside of us. It's no longer in a location. It's in a person, Jesus Christ and all who believe in him. Okay. Verse 20. In Christ, God reconciles all who entrust themselves to himself. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. There's two words here that we want to make sure we understand. And through him to reconcile. Reconciliation, reconcile implies what? That there was a separation. If reconciliation needs to happen, that means there was some kind of division, some kind of issue, some kind of problem in the relationship. And I think we get in danger sometimes when we, we were driving over here and we saw a sign on the road and it said, Jesus loves you unconditionally. It's like, that's true, but that can be dangerous to say it that way to someone you're not in a conversation with, right? Jesus loves you, come exactly as you are, but he loves you so much that he will not keep you as you are, right? We, we get this notion that, well, I'm just good, I'm fine. And Jesus loves me because I'm awesome. Like who, who wouldn't love me, right? We tend to walk, walk around with that spirit in us. Like, like, no, we're our enemies of God. Until we entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, we hate God. We don't like to think of ourselves like that. We think, well, I just need a tweak, a little improvement, a little, little ticket, 
to give Jesus the bouncer of heaven when I, when I try and pass by the pearly gate. But more or less, I'm good. No, we're, we're dead in our sins and trespasses. And it is God who has decided to save us. So we must be reconciled. And that's what Jesus' blood on the cross has done. And he makes peace. The word peace implies what? That there was war. There was war with God. We are born with a nature that is at war with God. We want to sit on the throne. We might not use that language, but that's how we think, and that's how we act, and that's how we dream, and that's how we plan, and that's how we spend our money, and that's how we spend our time. This is about me, right? That is rebellion against God. That is to say, God, you're not on the throne. I'm on the throne. And then we just need to get as many people as we can to come along with us and say, yeah, you should be on the throne. And then we wonder why our world's in the state that it's in. The other thing we see here that's significant is that we are saved from God. Yes, we are saved from our sin. Yes, we are saved from Satan. But who's the one that's going to punish sinners? God. God's the one that's going to punish sinners. It is God's wrath that we need to be saved from. Sin has its own set of consequences. Satan has its own set of consequences. We ultimately need to be saved from God's wrath. And how are we saved by God's wrath? By God. So we see that Christ in verses 15 through 17 is fully able to save. And we see in verses 18, 19, and 20 that he is more than willing to save. He has already accomplished and done the work, right? And I think this is a, I think there's a little bit of um, these false teachers, the spirit of these false teachers in all of us, right? Like there's a little bit of us that still is convinced that there's something we must offer. We, we must prove, there's a whole set, they call them worship songs. But really, there's, there's songs that are, are really trying to convince God how serious we are about wanting his presence. And, and if we sing with enough gusto and with enough heart, then maybe we'll convince God that we're, we're worthy to have an experience with God. And, you know, that's how we operate. That's the result of the fall. When Adam rebelled against God in the garden, we've inherited some of that. And we need to be aware of that. And this is a daily dis discipline of mine, because it is every day I wake up focused on my grip. And I have to talk myself down from that ledge and be like, this ends badly, right? This ends badly if it's my grip that I'm depending upon. And when we focus and we look to Christ, when we look to the branch and the strength of the branch and and the character, what Paul's doing here is saying, this is the branch that you are clinging to. And if all we do is stare at the branch, pretty soon that, that branch starts to wrap around us and hold us. And that, that joy and peace and life that Christ gives us, and we're, just, we're just determined to get this backwards. And I know I'm not the only one in this room that does that, right? And I'm telling you, the most transformative thing we can do is take that Tim Teller, Tim Keller quote and get it right. 
and, and preach it to ourselves. It's such a powerful quote because it, it contains the gospel. When we start to understand that our assurance of salvation and our life in God is based on who Jesus is, not on how great my faith is, not how devoted I am, not how serious or committed I am, but it is holy and utterly dependent upon who Jesus Christ is. And what well, that's a no, like there's no argument about who he is, right? He is who he is and he is able and willing to save. J.C. J. C. Ryle, an old dead guy, says that uh, half our doubts and fears, and I would add confusion, lack of joy and peace, arise from dim perceptions of the real nature of Christ's gospel. The root of a happy religion, he's using religion in a positive way here, the root of a happy Christianity is clear, distinct, well-defined knowledge of Jesus Christ. If, if Christ has done everything that verses 15 through 20 says that he has for us, is he going to quit now? Is our security safe? Is our assurance of salvation safe? If it entirely rests upon Jesus Christ, it is unshakable. He's not going to quit now. He's not going to give up. Your sins are not too big. You're not the exception to the rule. You're not the one that's like, oh, yeah, you crossed the line. You'll, you'll never get there. But we, we must do away with this imaginary line that we have out there in the future. Like if I can, if I can just cross that imaginary line, then God, right? That, that line doesn't exist. And we are far inadequate to evaluate if there was a line. Right? Because I'm going to base it on my emotions. I'm going to base it on all kinds of weird stuff that is not that it does not have a good foundation. So we got to do away with this. I, I've got to get to this point and then God will. No, no, no. All we must do is acknowledge that we were enemies of God. And that without him, we are going to fall off the cliff to our eternal death. And we cling to and call out to Christ, and we cling to that branch. I want to back up and just read to close verse 13 and 14. You know, these false teachers, when, when we look at what Paul is doing, and I, I don't feel like I've done a great job of this, but when we look at what Paul is doing, it's, he's just putting all the weight on Jesus Christ. 100% of the weight. There's a pastor that says, if, if our salvation is 99% Jesus and 1% us, we're dead. It is 100% on Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is doing, putting it all on Christ. And in, there, there's something that wants to wrestle that and be like, ah, oh, that, that's a lot of weight to put on one, one thing. But this is exactly what the scriptures tell us to do. Place it all on Christ or die. And so if we read verses 13 and 14. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. I worked on this recently with our team in Mexico, and, and I gave him a little piece of paper, and I said, at the top, put in Christ. Because verses 13 and 14 are true of you if you are in Christ, if you have entrusted yourself to Christ. 
And then I said, change the pronouns, not the way our culture does, but change the pronouns and make them very personal. Okay, so let's read this in a very personal manner. In Christ, Christ has rescued me from the domain of darkness, from self-glory and from death. He has transferred me to the kingdom of his beloved son. In Christ, I have redemption. I have forgiveness of my sins. I have been redeemed. You want to walk in Christ? Preach that to yourself every morning as soon as you get up. Take that verse and make it very personal. Put all the weight on Christ. It's the only one that can carry it. Cast yourself upon him, and you will be amazed at how that transforms your life. You'll be amazed at, at, at what happens to how you think and, and how you respond to people and how you interact with people and what worries you and doesn't worry you. The branch is secure. Cling to the branch and cling to nothing else. And quit looking at your grip. It's only going to cause anxiety. Jesus and Jesus alone is mighty to save. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. It just seems ridiculous to try and put into words who you are. It's undescribable. You're all powerful. You are perfect in every way. And your love has compelled you to save a people for yourself. But help us to, to grab a hold of that. Help us to place all of our hope and affection and faith in you. Help us to stop looking in the mirror and look upon only you. In your name we pray. Amen.